0: The following Dharma Talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground.
1: So we'll get started. Big welcome to everybody. Thanks for making it through the snow. Thanks to Rob and others who are bravely joined the snow blowing team, snow shoveling team. If you want to contribute in that way. We're collecting names for the Google group. You can pass those emails on to Rob over there, second row of chairs, or just connect with the office. And then you'll hear from Rob and other leaders about the next storm coming up to see who's in line to do it and whether they can, and if not, who might be able to sub. And that way we share the burden. And we have a really nice snowblower and great shovels. And wonderful sidewalks and a very spacious parking lot when no cars are there. (laughs) All the ingredients. There's a great poem, by the way, if you ever want to check it out, I think by Billy Collins, uh, a well-known poet, called Shoveling Snow with the Buddha. It's very fun. So we're finishing up a series. I'm finishing up, and I think Shelley's uh, spoken, and Patrice will be teaching next Wednesday, not this coming Wednesday, But in the fall, mostly we've been looking at the thinking mind and how to practice. There's no getting around it as a human being, as far as I understand. There's really no getting around this reality. It's sort of like it would be like not wanting to have a body, right? We have a life, body and a mind, but we find the body troublesome. If only, you know, I didn't have to eat or poop or stay warm or. And it's the same thing. Life, you know, as we know it as human beings, folks with a body and mind in this way, thinking just comes with the territory. And we don't want to demonize thinking. So it's really the question how to be skillful with thinking. We haven't had a lot of time for questions. So I'll save a lot of time today for just our discussion and questions about working with the thinking mind. But I'll just summarize, you know, our predicament. We have these. Activities of the body, these activities of the mind. In Buddhism, we call them the six sense gates, the five physical senses. That's what we mean by the activity of the body. The seeing, the hearing, the smelling, the tasting, and the touching. Never, as long as we're alive, does this activity stop moving. There's always a sight, or a sound, or a touch, or a smell, or a taste, or some combination arising and passing. Always the next sight, the next sound, the next touch, right? never stops, one thing after another. And, surprisingly maybe, it's the same with mental activity because that's another aspect of what is being known as a human being. We know the activity of the body and we know the activity of the mind. So, like I mentioned, this fall we've been talking about what, does a, what is a skillful way of relating to this activity of the mind, whether we call that mental activity or thoughts and emotions or whatever we call that activity of mind. It's not seeing and hearing and touching and smelling and tasting. Everything else is the activity of the mind. And that's our existence, being aware of these two sets of activity, activity of the mind, activity of the body. And when we relate to that activity in certain ways, then there's suffering. So the simple form from the Buddhist point of view is when we relate with greediness, when we relate with hate or aversion, fear, when we relate with delusion, distraction, denial, Right? these are the three unskillful ways of relating, then the fruit of relating with greed, anger, and delusion is there's some tightness, contraction. The mind or the heart feels oppressed not because of what we're smelling or what we're touching or what we're thinking, but the way the mind is understanding, the way the mind is relating to that movement of body or mind, unskillfully, with greed, anger, or delusion. And then they're suffering because of the way the mind is relating. And as potent as these activities of the body are, it's more relevant in terms of suffering, it's more relevant what the mind, the thinking mind, the activity of the mind is, and how wisdom or the lack of wisdom, how the mind is misunderstanding that activity of mind. We imagine that the activity of mind, thoughts and emotion, are more than what they are. So a lot of becoming skillful with thinking, with the activity of the mind, Is not imagining that thinking, emotion, mental imagining, not imagining it's more than what it is. So it's not about rejecting thought, suppressing even thought, although that's a skillful thing to do at times to sort of, and we've been talking about ways of sort of um, abandoning certain obsessive mental activities, right? Because they can be quite oppressive when we're caught in them. But ultimately, it's not being confused by mental activity. So even a very despicable thought might arise in our mind. But when there's enough momentum in our practice, enough wisdom, enough stability of awareness, we should be able in moments when we have that momentum to our practice to understand, I don't need, I mean, not that we'd have to say all these words, of course, but I don't need to freak out because this despicable thought is arising in my mind. I don't need to like pull out all these Buddhist interventions. Because the wisdom in the mind understands that absolutely everything arises and ceases and is not self, not personal. So this despicable thought, like maybe a really shameful thought, or really hateful thought, a really lustful thought, or whatever it might be that's shown up because of whatever supporting causes were there to trigger it, there it is, in its living beauty. That despicable, horrendous thought—you'd never want anybody to know you're thinking, right? That kind of thought. And so, when the mind is really wise and stable, it's not surprised because wisdom understands that anything can happen, right? So, of course, when the conditions are ripe, then this is what happens. When these supporting conditions are here, then this sort of thought arises in this kind of mind and feels like this, and looks like this. So the mind, wisdom, is not surprised. And it doesn't feel neurotically like I have to do something to make it go away. Because wisdom understands that things come and go on their own. Think about all the despicable thoughts we've had, and they've all gone away. So have the really wholesome thoughts. They've arisen, and they've gone away too. Right? So things are already coming and going. We don't have to get on that high horse, put on our armor, you know, whatever your vision or image of yourself being brave and courageous and doing battle with the evil thought that's there in your heart. We can have this much more nimble, much more effective approach when the confidence that comes from seeing wisdom in the mind is there. Oh, yeah, honey, this too will pass this thought, whatever it is, however seductive it is, it's just this mental construction, this projection really in the mind, on the screen of the mind, right? But with Dolby sound. So we sort of feel it viscerally, viscerally, like it's surround. you know, the screen is curved. So it kind of, you know, and now they've got the sensorama and the, you know, so we're feeling everything. It looks real, but wisdom knows it's just this projection. It's just these sensations. It's just this emotional tone, the scent, the sight, the sound. It's just this very compelling experience that has arisen due to causes and conditions and will soon cease. Now, if wisdom is weak, then as it's ceasing, the feeling tone of that despicable thought, that's Because the feeling tone goes away a little later. Like the image, the thought, is a very ephemeral thing. But the underlying emotional feeling, it lasts a little longer. So then the image, you know, the memory or whatever the provocative image is, that's evil, that goes away. But you're still feeling something. And the mind doesn't know what to do with the feeling. So what does the thinking mind do? It reconstructs the mental image, the thoughts. Why am I feeling this? Oh yeah. And then the image, the thought, triggers that resonant bodily emotional feeling. And the emotional feeling triggers the thought. And then that's the obsessive pattern. That's why it can have long legs. It can last for a while. But what wisdom does is it's tracking it. It has enough stability. It's tracking it. It's really seeing that it's not a continuous, like when we're obsessing about something, it's not continuous. It's many, many births and deaths. It's like there, and then it ceases, and then it gets regenerated, and then it ceases, and it, and we're really catching how ephemeral it is, and so it's sort of empowering. The mind realizes, I don't have to regenerate this. I can just let this obsessive, despicable, evil thought, you know, whatever it is. I can just let it cease and be willing to feel what remains when the mental image and the thoughts have ceased, but there's still some visceral reverberation from what I've just been thinking. There it is. We're still feeling that yucky feeling often, but we're not bothering to regenerate. Like We're not answering the question, why am I feeling this way? Well, we know we're feeling this way because the mind was thinking that thought. That thought's gone. This will soon be gone too. It just has a, a longer tail than the mental image. This is really the ghost to the heart of what feeds obsessive mental thinking patterns is the fact that mentality, the mental activity, is very quick. It arises very quickly and ceases very quickly. But what's alive in the body operates in a different time frame. It lasts a little bit longer. You notice that, right? So even like somebody who's had a close call, maybe a, a car accident that could have really killed them, but they no one got hurt, something like that. But the fear in the body, you might still be quivering minutes, even hours, after the close call. You're no longer, there's no delusion in the mind that thinks you're still in danger, right? But viscerally, it takes a while for that, whatever got triggered through your hormones and other sort of bodily processes, it takes a while for that to kind of work itself out and for the body to come back to a calm state. But the mind can know in a matter of a few seconds that it's over and you're safe. And the same thing when some old memory that triggers a lot of emotion. The memory might be there, and then it could be very quick where the mind realizes, yeah, that's over and done with, and the content goes away. But the fear, the trauma in the body gets reignited, and that can live for a while. And if we're not careful, if there isn't enough wisdom there, what we're feeling bodily, viscerally, can then re-trigger the mental content. And then you get in that sort of vortex where the mentality triggers the visceral and the visceral triggers the mental and it just feeds on itself. And we all know this can go on a long time. So when, there's, when the wisdom is stable enough, we can just see this. And when it's not, then we use those five strategies we've been talking about. And you can listen to the talks from the previous four or five weeks where we've covered the peg image. Those of you who have memorized, right, we remember the peg pushing out the old peg, is bringing in an antidote. What can I think about so that when I'm thinking about this thing, that obsessive pattern, I have some immunity from that obsessive pattern. So when we're burning with anger, If I bring kindness to mind, in any way I can bring kindness to mind, it gives the mind immunity because kindness and anger don't exist in the same mind. The second one is that garland of rotting flesh. So when we catch ourselves obsessing this is a more intense intervention. We say, okay, when I let the mind continue in this way, who do I become? What kind of heart and mind gets cultivated? Is that who I want to become? So we're basically skillfully frightening ourselves like, oh yeah, this is how it works. This is how you become, you know, an obsessive, angry old man. Is that who you want to become? No. So then why would you be feeding that fire if you don't want to be that fire? Stop throwing wood in the fire, right? And then that, that's how, that's another way to break the cycle of obsessive thinking. If That doesn't work. The third strategy is to just, what can I pay attention to so I won't pay attention to that? So it's a more blunt strategy and we will dangle anything in front of us. Like, what can I do that I can absorb into so that I'll forget about this other thing? And the image the Buddha uses here for this is just averting your eyes. I'm not going to look at that. You can do anything you want, honey, but you're not looking at that. So we're becoming a little bit more assertive with the mind. You can't look, but you can do anything else you want, but you can't go back there. You can't regurgitate that thought. You can't go back to that image, that memory. Oh, you still go back. So you're still obsessing. So then you pull out the fourth intervention, more intense. Okay, let's sit down. Let's think this thing through. What's going on? What came before that? So it's a tracing back, right? And the image the Buddha uses is like, why am I running? Let me stand. Or let me walk. Why am I walking? Let me stand. Why am I standing? Let me sit. Why am I sitting? Let me lie down. So we're tracing back. How did this come to be? What came before? Oh, there was that. And what came before? And we're sort of helping the whole thing, the obsessive pattern implode by seeing its lawful conditional nature. It's always one thing leading to the next. Often little seeds build and become a big fire, right? A big mess, big entanglement. And then the last is this sort of resistance, it's suppression. Crush mind with mind in the same way a strong person would pin down a weaker person, hold it down, hold that person down. We crush mind with mind, the Buddha says. So obviously, this is a blunt, invasive strategy. When nothing else works, we know only one thing continuing in the obsessive pattern is not helpful. And so that's where we take our stand. This cannot continue. I don't know anything. I don't if I knew a clever strategy, I would have used it right It would have been effective. I have nothing left but to say this isn't helpful. This is not going to continue. So that's sort of like wrestling with the mind. So let me leave it here. So we have more like 20 minutes today to hear from people, because for however long we have been working skillfully and unskillfully with our thinking mind, and we've learned a thing or two. right? So maybe you've learned to ask a question, so then ask that question, or you've learned to share some experience of what doesn't work or what works, right? And, and then when we hear people share, we'll try to just think, well, what? how does that fit with the five strategies the Buddha talks about? Right? It would be nice just to become more fluent with this particular teaching we've been looking at. Anybody want to begin with a question or a sharing from your own practice how you've been working with your thinking mind? Yeah, Tom, start us off, and then we'll go back to you.
2: Yeah, Mark, I have a, <clears throat> a problem with this fourth strategy uh, about looking into the background of it mm-hmm. because it has always seemed to me that the teaching here has been and I'm, I'm looking at like an anger that the idea was not to try and solve the anger. The idea was just to let it go. And now you're teaching us to look at the anger, why i anger angry. Yeah. That's what it sounds like to me. I just No,
1: no, you're exactly right. If we could let it go, we would have let it go. So remember, you don't get to the fourth strategy. If mindfulness isn't enough, you go to the first strategy where you... Actively bring in an antidote that gives the mind some immunity from the obsessive pattern. But you wouldn't do any of the one through five if you could just see it, allow it, allow it to cease on its own without any trace, without setting up an ongoing seduction and entanglement with that particular obsessive pattern. So these are strategies. So remember, the Buddha taught the way to freedom. But he also taught all kinds of strategies for those of us who are not free, who don't have stable present moment awareness, whose wisdom doesn't have a lot of momentum, how to survive, how not to dig the hole deeper. Right. So this is a, an important point because the Buddha taught a lot of therapeutic interventions with the mind as well as pointing to a kind of absolute or complete freedom with the conditions of the moment. And so we're, we're, we're kind of getting this spectrum, and it can be confusing because just tell me what to do. We just want one thing, just be mindful. But the thing is, the kind of mind or the kind of moment we face at different moments in our lives, is wildly different. Sometimes we're in a very sublime, relatively settled place, and the way to be skillful is going to look a particular way. Sometimes we're just a beast with beastly emotions and mental qualities, and wild things happening around us. And the kind of strategies we need to be skillful in that moment are going to be completely different than a moment where our mind is pretty sublime and clear and peaceful. Yeah. And so, because of compassion, the Buddha gave advice for wherever a human being might find themselves. Yeah. Say your name for us.
0: Well, you. We're recording.
1: Oh, yeah, so you don't have to. So,
0: Mary, not her real name.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And that's a good reminder that we do record on Sunday mornings.
0: Yeah, okay. Um, So, yeah, because I wanted to talk about my boss. (laughs) Um, But, right, right, yeah, let's call her Patty, (laughs) not her real name. (laughs) Um, No, but I wanted to talk about me not being free in the last couple of weeks. And so uh, concurrent with my joining your community, I got more or less what I thought was my dream job. And um, it has really turned out to be a very stressful, uh, kind of uh, codependent, weird relationship with my supervisor. And I've become very sensitive, like extremely sensitive to when things are not feeling right with me. And so these five interventions I've been practicing the last couple weeks, uh, trying to, and one through three just have not been working for me at all because I have so much weird fear in my relationship with her. And so uh, I've gone to four and really trying to analyze why, trace back what is triggering me with her and vice versa. And what I've tentatively um, kind of come to, and again, this is just a rationalization, is that she and I are kind of two different versions of each other. She's taken one path, which is a very kind of, I see it as a very fearful, ego-driven, striving type of person that doesn't have any work-life balance. And I am kind of like this flighty, artistic, free, hippie version of her, which is like she wants to crush it. Um <laughs> And I want to free her, and you know it's messed up. And so I literally have decided to quit. So this week I I quit, and I and I quit kind of in a sort of a blaze of glory, but also you know trying to keep a relationship there. But it's um, I I don't feel great about it. But I literally have had to remove myself from the situation because I just all the other strategies are not working for me and I I, like I don't feel great at all but whenever I can separate myself from that work environment I do feel great again I feel creative I feel safe but I don't think there's any way and it's so strange because nothing bad is happening like she has good relationships with everybody else in the office but she and I are just not compatible and I don't know if you could talk a little bit about this like hypersensitivity I now have to like just not feeling okay with certain people.
1: Well, I, you probably have even heard me, but I always joke but it's not a joke that we should have a sign, maybe even in neon, as people walk into the Dharma Center here, that, uh, you know, warning for those who enter, for those who begin a practice, you will become more sensitive. You will begin to feel the unfinished business in your own heart, and you will begin to intuit and sense and be sensitive to the unfinished business in everybody else's heart, and that's a good thing. But it's really, really, really hard to bear. And it's exactly that tension—it's being hard to bear—that provokes the development of wisdom and compassion, right? It's that over—let's call it oversensitivity—that starting to sense and feel things that we normally had more effective distractions operating in our lives, being too busy, being obsessed about things that ultimately aren't that important.
0: Being more worried about money or yeah, f- you know, exactly. than, than our own personal...
1: Which is kind of that lie, like if only I have a lot of money, then I'll be happy and things will be fine, right? And then how many people for how many days, moments of their lives, that was the governing idea. But it, when we step back from it, we know it's completely absurd. But we can be in that vortex, and it seems like it's like makes a lot of sense. Like, yeah, when I do get that money, when I am financially secure, or whatever it is, emotionally, romantically secure, then. But there's never a then, right? So that insecurity, whatever it is, however that opening to the truth of insecurity happens for each of us, and it will be distinct, you know. This person here is talking about how just in a serendipitous day, Dippiest way, having this great job, and but all of a sudden, this relationship with this person triggering, opening up. Now, maybe it will continue as you go forward. this the fear that's been uncovered, maybe not. But this is your path not to imagine you're going to get beyond it, but you're going to keep unpacking it. What's it's really the fourth strategy is what the whole path is about. It's getting into the underlying causes. And, you know, what the Buddha will say, but it's just the words now. We have to discover it directly in our experience. What the Buddha says is, at the core is a misunderstanding of what this all is. That's, That's the really root of the existential anxiety, is not understanding. Misperceiving and constructing a sense of separation which we're doing in an ongoing way. But we have to follow that thread of anxiety from thinking it's about this particular relationship to realizing it's here in the heart. The one image the Buddha uses is discovering in his practice deeply embedded in his heart a thorn that he had previously not noticed, but there it is, right? And then removing the thorn removing the misunderstanding that life things are to be grasped or to be held like the idea when I get financial security that like grasping that idea or when I'm finally independent and I have you know I'm independent from the grid I've got solar panels I grow my own vegetables I've learned to become emotionally independent I don't need any relationships with any people you know I have my and so we have these sort of ideas of like not needing the world. Whatever we cling to, that's, that's the idea that we have to cling to something, that there's somebody that has to cling to something. That gets, those are the words that sort of, for me at least, point to this deeper existential uneasiness that are results because of misperceiving, misunderstanding, thinking we know something about the nature of life or being a person that actually is built on lies or built on superficiality. So think of it as like being grateful that this turned out and how in a more balanced way can you begin to live with this fear that's opened up for you, not wanting it to go away, but wanting to. It's sort of like your teacher. You can imagine yourself in the morning before your practice, you bowing down to that wormy kind of fear. You have in your God or in your heart, wherever you feel it. It's like, okay, I want you to, I don't want to move beyond you. I want to see what you have to teach. Yeah, so good luck with that. Whatever (laughs) your name is.
0: (laughs) Thanks,
3: Mark. (laughs) Yeah,
1: you want to go next, Mike, and then we'll go to Margie.
3: I'm Mike. And uh, yeah, I'd just like to share a recent experience I've had with uh, strategy four (laughs) since this um, sort of talk, this series on the mind has started. Um, Yeah, so I have, you know, a long kind of habitual pattern of just some self-depreciating thoughts. And so that can emerge in my mind in a lot of different flavors at different times. And so um, thinking about it from the perspective of strategy four just recently um, of tracing it back, the pattern of the mind when you're trying to trace it back and you're already thinking in a self-depreciating pattern is to be like, okay, well, um, creating supporting evidence for why you're a bad person. It's like tracing it back. Well, yeah, I feel loneliness and separation because I've done all of these things or not done these things in the past. Um, but just actually last night it was, it was really coming on strong and it was like, I looked at it and was like, you know, tracing it back in the perspective of, you know, the last like in two minutes ago, you know, two minutes ago, you know tracing back to where this thought came from and realizing that the thought was not actually reality it was just a habitual thing that just manifested and
1: we're learning to see it as a natural process
3: yeah and so when that occurred it was like just this release yeah and it was it was really um it was really incredible actually and uh
1: and you you persisted with it, like even when it wasn't working, you kept at it. Which well allowed that to happen. I mean, yeah, over the days well, and weeks.
3: Yeah, I mean, like I said, this just happened last night, but uh, it actually was significant enough of a realization at the time that it was like there was just nothing left left to chew on, really. Yeah. You know, it because done. it
1: isn't about getting to the very beginning; it's about relating to the obsessive pattern as a natural phenomena, as a conditional natural phenomena. So when you start tracing back, again, it's not about getting to the origin story. It's more about relating to the obsessive pattern, not as me, but as just something that is a natural process. And that's what breaks the bubble or pops the bubble, is learning to see it as a natural process instead of who I am.
3: Well, and so that maybe brings up another question of, I kind of saw it a little bit as like the rotting flesh of being like this pattern of thinking is (laughs) incredibly unskillful and painful. And it's not something I want to, I probably will pick it up again just through having a distracted mind. But, you know, I want to see it for what it is.
1: Yeah, and that's the whole idea. We just integrate these different strategies. So instead of like using them in a linear way that we've been talking about them, they just become part of how wisdom operates in the mind, just the tools that wisdom has. And it, wisdom will use them nimbly, not in some kind of orderly way, but just like survival. Like, okay, what do I got? I got these tools. Let me, which one should I use now? You know, and yeah. Thanks, Mike, for sharing with us. Margie, you want to go next?
4: Okay, here's a something I <laughs> have never told anybody, and now I'm telling all of you. <laughs> Um, so it, it's, I think it's strategy, uh, strategy four. Um, a couple of facts. Growing up, I, I come from a large family. It's, there was some chaos. And um, over the years, a lot of us uh, lost bicycles. We just left them outside. Um, and they disappeared there there was no way to know when or how sometimes maybe you didn't go to look for it for another week or something and it was just not there so that's fact and then um, when I was in high school once um, our I was home alone and uh, our house was burglarized and I I heard some noises and I um, came out of my room and basically scared out the burglars out. Of, they all ran out of the house. It was a. I looked out the window, and it's a grown man and a couple of like three or four teenagers, and they were of a certain um, group. So now it, it's. <laughs> I cannot see a person of that group riding a bicycle without the thought coming into my mind that that is a stolen bicycle. It's just this association from these experiences that are put together. And I, you know, I, um, I never believed it. I, I, you know, I, I have that thought. It comes automatically and now I can look at it and go, oh, okay, that's a thought that's conditioned by these experiences and it, it's just absurd. Um, and I, I can sort of, it's, it's getting, you know, it, it doesn't last long. It's more flighty and I can sort of feel amused by it now at this point but it's just clear to me how how the mind puts things together and you can't help it and it's, yeah. yeah
1: and then think about all of the cultural conditioning through movies and tv and other sort of media products that told a basic different stories about groups of people that we've been programmed with let alone our life experiences and the mind is very simplistic on how it draws conclusions based on our limited culturally-based experiences, right? And so we have to, like, illuminate that. Otherwise, we perpetuate so much of the injustice that exists around race, around sex, around, you know, any number of these uh, kinds of differences in our culture and our society. And and the, the key, and you kind of talked about this, Margie, is about, like, willing to feel because... The mind, when it's organizing around these sort of biases that have some roots, of course, they don't just come out of nowhere. There's some experience or some kind of cultural condition where we get these sort of biased ways or organized ways of viewing, classifying. And there's often a charge there, you know, like there was some fear, as you described in your experience. So when they come back up, when you start noticing it, we have to notice the underlying anxiety. We have to be willing to name that, feel that. Then we start to have some freedom. It's not about getting rid of that cultural conditioning because it's not going to go away. It's really about bringing it into the light of awareness. So we know, like you said, we know what it is and we know what it isn't. Like, oh, that's connected to that very particular experience. And I don't have to generalize from that particular experience. But when it's existing under so under the surface, then it does affect how we are. When you know wherever we're moving through our society, those impulses will start feeling it. But we won't really know what's going on. So it's really hard to bring that to the surface. But it's kind of how we take care of ourselves and how we take care of everybody by learning to do that. Yeah, thanks. That's really a powerful sharing. I think we might have time for one more. Steve, maybe?
2: So I just thought about this uh, the last moment but um, I had obsessive thoughts in the middle of the night for years and it would keep me up at nights and I would uh, ruminate and then I'd build up this visceral feeling of fear and then uh, I would turn into sleeplessness and sleeplessness would go on for hours and hours and so back and forth. It was real, real suffering. And um, I came upon uh, some wonderful teaching about the uh, seeing it as, as one chasing the other. And so what I began to realize, I'd wake up in the middle of the night and then, boom, fear first. And then the thoughts, oh, I'm worried I won't get back to sleep again. And then it went back into, and I was just kept feeding each other and feeding each other. It was so painful. So about a year ago, I started to see the cycle, and um, it wasn't an easy process to break. It was a long process, but it was in seeing that the feeling was generating the thought. Yeah. And, and I always thought it had to be the other way around, that yeah. the thought fed the feeling. But no, it came out of itself and then the thought fed into it.
1: Because the whole basis is this underlying anxiety or uneasiness or fear. That's sort of the root. You know, like in Christian uh, theology, it's like that uh, separation from God when whoever ate the apple, right? And in Buddhism, this is sort of the truth of dukkha or uneasiness, unreliableness, insecurity, Because we're living a lie, basically, you know, in a Buddhist sense. We're living based on our superficial misperception that there's a me apart from everything else, which is the sort of root of ignorance, right? And so that's why we wake up in the middle of the night and there's fear there, because we're living a lie. Our story that we're living with doesn't make sense, it doesn't align with the way it is. And on some basic level, the result of that is the whole system is uneasy. And we can cover it up if we have good defense systems, but in the middle of the night, the good defense systems aren't operating very well. So when you wake up, there it is. Yeah, thanks so much, Steve, for sharing that. And the children are here, so we'll let it go here.
0: This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs,